body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not, um, but it is not the spiritual that is, uh, is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust, the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as of the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have become born, been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall be bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? I mean, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. What a very powerful passage we have before us this morning. And uh, for those of you who were here for Sunday morning Bible study, uh, you will know that there's going to be a lot of overlap because there's so many good things that uh, Lance touched on this morning that we're going to get to dive in hopefully a little bit deeper this morning together. So I'm looking forward to that. You can't sometimes just can't time those things out. We don't really try to sync up our Sunday morning Bible study with worship, but it seems like so often that happens and many of the guys who preach know how, how, um, how providential that is. And so we've already mentioned this before, but let's go ahead and say it again. The last couple of weeks, we've been making kind of our final approach. You know, it's kind of like when you're flying on a plane and you're landing into the airport and you're making your final approach and there's these final preparations, final instructions from the pilot, what to do as we're landing into that final approach. And so we can imagine in some sense, Paul being kind of a pilot here and his voice is coming over the loudspeaker and he's giving instructions to the flight crew. He's giving instructions to the passengers as to what to do. For, and what information they need as they're making that approach in. We got Pilate here. He understands this is what he does for a living. Um, but for Paul, the important information he's preparing the church for is they're making that final sin, is they're trying to prepare for the life to come, essentially. This is where we're at. Is he's telling them to come back and take a, a deeper look, another look, a, a more glorious look at the gospel once again and gleam, into, gleam from it the riches of 
that central cardinal work of Jesus that has been accomplished for us in the resurrection and one day will be fully, fully uh, manifested in our future resurrected bodies. In his teaching on the gospel, um, in these last couple of weeks, we've been seeing Paul deal with some, some errant, if you will, or misunderstandings about the gospel, particularly as it relates to the resurrection we saw last week. And the main issue he is he, 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 he wants to make sure they understand is that how we understand the truth of the resurrection changes everything about how we experience the next life. And I would also say this life. How we understand the truth of the resurrection changes everything about how we experience or even anticipate, as our brother Kirk said earlier, how we anticipate the next life in this life. If we have a thin view of the resurrection, our anticipation of that glorious destination, that place that we're landing into, um, it, it, it's less exciting. It has, it has less of a punch for us. It's like planning um, a trip to Paris, right? And you get your tickets and you're headed to the airport and you're all excited and you're, you're peaking, you're, you're kind of peaked as you kind of enter the airport, you're checked in, going through security, finally they're calling you to load the plane, you're walking down the you know, the, the tarmac, if you will, going down into this plane and you get out to the end of it and you realize you're getting on a puddle jumper, all right? You're not getting on a 767. You're getting on a puddle jumper. And you're like, this seems weird. I'm flying from Nashville to Paris and this, like, I'm, this makes me a little nervous. I'm not sure I really want to be on this plane, but you're a good sport. You go ahead and jump on anyway. So you're stowing away all of your luggage and you're putting it away. You sit down and you take a glance at your ticket again just to make sure that something doesn't finish right. And you look down and here's what you realize. You're not flying to Paris, France. You're flying to Paris, Kentucky. Yeah? And Paris, Kentucky is a real place. It's right outside of Lexington, Kentucky, uh, kind of near where we used to live many years ago. And uh, it's a real place. It's a fantastic place, but it's not Paris, France. Um, it's not Paris, France by any stretch of the imagination. When we rob our view of the life to come, of the power and promise of the resurrection, we rob our hope of end future anticipation right now of that life to come, and we, we don't get to experience, even in some measure right now, the glory and splendor of that in this life. We saw last week that Paul has begun refuting some of this errant idea about the resurrection and the reality of resurrection in our life, and he's saying, look, your, your, your resurrectionless Christianity is, at the end of the day, leaves your faith um, pitiable. It's weak. It offers no hope to the world. And so today we're going to continue and build off of what we did last week with this thought. The church will, should look to the resurrection with wonder and anticipation. Why? Because we will be changed into bodies that are made ready for the glory of God. That's why we look forward to the resurrection. That's why the resurrection matters. He's taking that next step. We should look forward to the resurrection with wonder and anticipation because we will be changed into bodies that are made ready for the glory of God. So two questions here in verse 35 kind of set the tone for our time. One question that Paul is either anticipating or perhaps wants to lay the groundwork of just making, taking the conversation a little deeper. But most likely these are questions that are coming from his opponents. And you see them right there. They're very clear. How are the dead raised? So he's like, I, I'd like to know, Paul, exactly what is, it, what is this resurrection that you speak of? And two, what kind of bodies will we get when this is all said and done? And those are really, really good questions. And they're in questions that we must think through as Christians and what we believe about the resurrection. Because um, these questions reveal, for Paul at least, some missteps that are behind some of their 
their poor thinking about the resurrection. And so he's going to respond to these questions in four ways, or really three ways within at the end, an imperative in verse 58, which kind of wraps up all of his thinking about the gospel. The first of those things we're going to talk about here in a minute is that there's a, uh, there's a rotten root at the base of your understanding of the resurrection. That root has to do with how you think God is. And we'll talk about that here in a second, point one. The second thing he's going to then take us to is that you need to understand that the resurre- what the resurrection is and what the resurrection isn't. That's going to be our second idea that Paul wants to unpack. And then third, he's going to say we need to understand the purpose of the resurrection. There's a purpose to it, namely, and we have already seen it, we will be changed. And what exactly does that entail? And because of all that, then he's going to come and wrap all of his thoughts of chapter 15 under this one glorious imperative of hopeful imperative to call us to keep on. Keep on keeping on. So let's look at that first thought. There's a rotten root of, in, at the base of resurrectionless Christianity. There's a rotten root at the base of resurrectionless Christianity. So he's asked, they've asked the question, and his response to them is, foolish person, you're fool. That seems harsh, doesn't it? We don't think that that's probably wise for Christians to call other Christians foolish, but he's calling them out. He's, he's asking them to rethink and to think deep, more deeply about this idea of the resurrection. And then he answers the first thing he wants to deal with is that rottenness that's at the core of their, of their thinking about the resurrection. And so look at verse 36, at least the second part of verse 36 and through 38. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. You can kind of hear that in Paul's, that's the way I'm kind of when I'm reading, that's what I hear, right? It doesn't come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps a wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. So Paul is using this horticultural analogy to press the point of receiving the kind of resurrection bodies that we should be, and way we should be thinking about this idea of resurrection. For those who hold out, and, and, and many do, this kind of like, oh, the idea of resurrection is just nonsensical. We, we can't validate that. Maybe you might think science kind of disproves the idea of resurrection. What he's going to do here with this horticultural analogy is he's going to actually say, actually, resurrection's written everywhere in nature, and he's going to use this kernel to show that. So, and you guys know this, right? How many guys plant, you know, you got gardens maybe or something, or maybe you have, or you've attempted to and really messed it up really bad. Like, that's probably more like me. Um, But when you plant a seed in the ground, what emerges from the soil after you plant the seed in the ground is not what you planted, is it? It's not the same. It's the same organism, but it's a very different thing that you see when it actually emerges from the ground. Once it is buried... It arises something completely changed. Um, And we'll dive into more of that here in our third point, but it's just worth noting right now. So what you have then, if you have a little package of seeds, it's lifeless. If you just were to put the seeds on the counter by itself with nothing acting on it on its own, what would happen to the seed? Nothing. You could put it in a glass and just sit on your, just nothing, nothing would happen to it. But once you bury the seed, something, and then, and then the nutrients of the soil act upon it, the moisture and the oxygen and the sunlight, you know this, right? You learned this early on, photosynthesis. We all get this, this idea, right? Well, it's, it's a great analogy of the power of the resurrection. It's a great analogy of the resurrection of itself because we are buried with Christ. 
We die to ourselves. What we are now is no longer what will be when we're risen with Christ. And so what he's getting at here at the rotten root of all of this is that you're, you're, it's kind of like what you're, you're, you're expecting. You're not expecting the bigness of what's about to happen, the difference of what is buried, what is dead, and what is actually going to rise. And this is why they struggle with the resurrection, right? Because they think that the body that is to be raised is going to be somewhat similar to the body that was buried. They think of resurrection as just maybe putting new breath back into an old body and just like basically essentially a, a, a zombie, if you will, just being somehow another reanimated in some sense. But that's not the resurrection at all. It's a complete and utter change. And so Paul's bringing this, their attention to their failure to see this because he then uses this to, to reveal the rotten root, the rotten root. Real life is something that happens outside of us. It's something that is given to us. We don't bring life. Nothing happens to us by our own making. It's something that is given to us just from the very beginning of Genesis. Nothing would be formless and void, created out of nothing, ex nihilo, and then God says, let it be, let there be, and then what? There's life, and the world's teeming with life. And then when we fall, in the, and when, we, when, when, when mankind fell in the garden under Adam and under Eve, what happened? That life was removed from us. Now, we were, we were still living beings. We had blood pumping through our veins. But the spiritual life, the real life in us, no longer existed. We are now living. Even though we have a spirit in us, it's a spirit that is condemned to death, a, a spirit that is condemned to die. And so real life is something that happens outside of us. The real source of all of life is God. And so that's the rotten root. And that all of life, they have forgotten, all of life is governed by the sovereign power and the sovereign will of God. And so if that's the case, why would resurrection be so unexpected? Why would resurrection be such an, a thing that we would, have, we would struggle to um, consider? If there is a God who's sovereign in power and he's the one who brings life into everything that is, why would resurrection be so unthinkable? And that's what Paul's getting at. Their notion of God is, and I want to use a couple of big words here, deistic versus theistic. And if you don't know the difference, let me try to briefly explain. You and I are Christians. And if you are a Christian, you're a theist. Your theist means that you have a God who is involved in the affairs of creation. He's not just a God who stands outside of creation and hopes everything goes okay inside the bubble, but he's actually a God who's involved in creation. That's theism. Deism says God created everything, but God will not interfere with the affairs of man in any way, shape, or form. He will let the natural processes happen. There's a deistic understanding. Now, you may not think, well, maybe that wasn't the way they would frame it back in the Corinthian days, but that's essentially what we would say today in our modern philosophical thinking. Theism is a God who is involved in creation. Deism is a God who is not. He acts, his acts are, theistic God, are bound by the natural system he has created. And so what ends up happening in that situation is God becomes second chair. When you have a God who's second chair, he's not a powerful God, is he? And there is no such thing. It seems implausible for a resurrection. But God's not second chair. Paul says the rotten root at the base of your idea is the fact that somehow or another you think the life comes from the organism rather than the one who created the organism. No, God is never second chair. And that's the foolish center of their resurrectionless faith, isn't it? They worship a small God. 
and not the God who has revealed himself and who has acted sovereignly in creation. But God is indeed free and sovereign to act into creation as he wishes, according, of course, consistent to his own character and his own nature. That's the God we live and worship. That's the God. And what's more, when God acts on creation and acts within creation, what he creates is wholly new, wholly different than the, than the mere body that is there and exists there. He makes something new out of something that is dead or old. He makes all things new. That's what our hope holds out as a future resurrection. When Jesus returns, he will make all things new, does he not? And so then Paul then presses this point a little bit further in verses 39 through 41 because he wants to show us the difference between the kinds of bodies. And, and, and let me just read 39 for you uh, through 41. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There's heavenly bodies, here's the key, and there are earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly body is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory for the sun, another for the moon, another, for, another glory for the stars. For star differs from star in glory. See, Paul reminds them that what we're talking about here, there's a vast difference between heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. And he's going to get pressing that a little bit further as he talks about the difference between Adam and, 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 and Jesus here in just a little bit. But he's reminding us there's a vast difference between the earthly and the heavenly. And so here in, in what we're going to see here in the next few verses, 42 through 49, is he's going to then show us the difference between the, the, the earthly body, the bodies you and I presently dwell with, right? The ones that we get frustrated with, the ones that we always want to try to repair and remodel a change, and that could be physically or spiritually or any other way. And he's going to show us all these wonderful upgrades that come to us in the resurrection. Yeah, you get upgrades, and that's going to be a wonderful thing. So that's our second point, the difference between our present and future bodies, the upgrades that we get. And so verses 42 through 49, and we're just going to take them piece by piece. You know, in my old age, and I'm getting old now, I feel like I'm getting old, um, I'm getting kind of picky about things. And I felt extremely guilty about this the first time I bought one. But now I won't buy a car that doesn't have leather seats in it. I won't do it. I mean, I've looked for new cars for a vehicle, and I'm like, if it doesn't have leather in it, I just don't want to have it. I know that sounds a little bougie. I get it, all right? But it's, but it's not. I, I, I got it, and I, when we first bought our van we have now, we had leather in it, and then we bought the pot. I was like, man, is this, like, is this okay? Am I allowed to do this? And, but I want to tell you, with kids who play sports, it's a game changer. It's amazing. And how much more that thing takes, you can take care of the vehicle. And so that may sound like a small upgrade for a lot of us because it seems like a lot of that's a more standard reality well for paul there's much more upgrade that you and i need to be thinking about the beauty of the upgrades we get in that, that future body that future resurrection so let's just look at four of them for a moment the first thing is verse 42 now we live in perishable bodies then we will live in imperishable bodies so it is with the resurrection, he says, what is sown is, imper is, is perishable, excuse me, and what is raised is imperishable. To be perishable means it comes with an expiration date. I used to be a perishable director for grocery stores I worked at, I, and you had to do all kinds of different things, and you had to create marketing plans, and you had to move products in certain ways and rotate product. You had to move the stuff that was going to go out of date faster and move it to the front so people would buy it, and you and I do the things that all grocery store people hate more, and we'd start digging behind it to get the, the, you know, the latest date. 
um, we can get. But perishable means expiration date. Our bodies have expirations to them. That's just the reality that you and I will face. And certainly you and I can attend to our bodies in healthy ways, in various ways, tend to the, to the physical needs of our body, the emotional needs of our bodies, the relational needs of our embodiment here in this life. But because of sin, death will ensure that that body will one day perish. Everything that you see about you will perish. And some of us feel it more than others. I'm 48, as I've said earlier, and I'm starting to feel, I, I get, like, look, look, I got the snack, you know, snack, uh, crackle and pop thing going on, right? You get out of bed and you're just like, oh, wow, that's, that's new. And that's a new one this morning. And you get it, you feel it, right? And, um, but it's true. But even as I, as I've even tried to make some changes in my own life to be in better shape and lose some weight and, 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 and make the doctor happy when I go back and get my tests, uh, a couple times, you know, a couple times a year, it's still remember that that even has its own, it can runs its course at some point. That you and I can't outrun sickness. We can't outrun the pain. We can't outrun death. And no matter what we do with our routine. See, the resurrected body, though, Paul talks about is imperishable. That means it's eternal. And that it one day will no longer decay. It will no longer age. And that's wonderful, some of us. Amanda likes to talk about her, 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 her shiny 25-year-old body she'll get back one day, right? I think we all would love, we all say, like, what's that going to happen like, right? And that might be what's in view here. I don't really know. No one really knows what the ideal Adam physical presence is. That's not the main issue here. But this imperishable body is not one that we attain on ourselves, by ourselves. That's the main thing. Again, we said earlier, it's God who makes and, and brings life. It's him who's going to take our old bodies and make them new. This imperishable body is not one that we obtain within ourselves more than, more than a seed that is buried can become a beanstalk on its own. It's something that God does to make it happen. So what was our body now is so imperishable, but it will be raised imperishable. The second one is our bodies now are dishonorable, are sown in dishonor your version might say, but they shall be raised glorious or in glory. It is sown in dishonor and is raised in glory. I like how one commentator says that this idea of dishonor is to be humiliated. That our bodies are presently in humiliation. Our present bodies are lowly. Our present bodies are powerless. They are bound by our fallenness. This means that we still struggle in our present body and our present mode of living. Um, in this present body, with un sometimes with the, with, the, with the impact of sin and unrighteousness and death that happens there. And we still struggle, and you can join me in this, right? I mean, unworthy attitudes and actions until we're fully and finally sanctified one day when Jesus returns. But the new body is glorious. Another way of saying that, it's raised in splendor. We are renewed to a pre-fall condition, but far more than just looking like Adam and Eve. I think that's setting the bar a little bit low, personally. But it's not that we are just going to be like Eden, but it's going to be a, we're going to radiate something better than Eden. That there's, there's a garden coming one day, and there's going to be a new heavens and new earth, and there's going to be new inhabitants with resurrected bodies that inhabit that new, new heavens and new earth. And they're going to exceed even Eden itself, the glories of Eden itself. That's the picture of Revelation 21. Preparing, we will be prepared for a new and better Eden that will come day one day in the new heavens and new earth. 
Then the third thing he says, then our bodies now reside in weakness, similar to what we just talked about. But then it'll be one day we will be raised in power. To be weak in Paul's mind is to be subject to the ravages and constraints of our time in this moment. You cannot outrun the body you have. Again, you can make healthy choices. That's not what we're getting at here. But our bodies are prone to accidents. I mean, but they are. Like, I, I, I can go out here and I can drive home and I can drive home a thousand times, but it does not prevent me from having that one accident out of a thousand times. And I have driven between here and my home more than a thousand times. But nothing precludes me from making a mistake in my physical impairment as it stands, that weakness, that physical present weakness that I'm in. And so sometimes that weakness is brought on by my own sinful proclivity and the sinful decisions, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes I'm receiving the impact of someone else's sinful decisions or, or whatever, or it could be just the fact that we live in a world that is, that is ruled by death. And this age will die. It will one day be no, long, be no more. But our new bodies... They will not be weighed down by those constraints. And then we will be transformed from glory to glory. We will not get exhausted by our present embodiment and the work in which we do. We tend to do this, right? The work we do, just, man, I get tired, I get weary. I'm, I'm trying to be a good parent. I'm trying to be a good husband. I'm trying to be, show up at my work and be a good, faithful uh, laborer. And that's good. But you know that after you do that for a while, you get tired. One day we will not. And we will live in created, new, resurrected bodies that will be able to carry out God's will in every way for eternity. That's what we got to look forward to. And then he kind of pulls all those three we just mentioned under this larger rubric of the bodies we have now, right? They're sown as a natural body, but they're raised as a spiritual body. If there's a spiritual body, there's also a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So then there's, we're natural. This is the difference between where we are now and the way we will be one day when we fully spiritual. Our present bodies are natural and they exist only in this present life and they will die with this present life. Paul is not saying that our future resurrection is only spiritual. That would be far from what he's trying to get at. In fact, opposite of what he's getting at, but that our future bodies will be fully indwelt bodily with the spirit. We will have really embodied embodied with the spirit with us forever and ever and that will be to be one of our inheritances we will be embodied in an age to come when christ returns our resurrected bodies will be wholly new and they'll be fit for the heavenly realm right now our bodies are not fit for the heavenly realm mind body or soul any of that we're not fit for the heavenly realm and that's the whole part of resurrection that christ is carrying out for us we are going to be made bodies that'll be fit for the heavenly realm and for that final kingdom that our lord will bring one day in his future coming and you may go well i'm trying to grasp what you're getting at here well paul understands we're trying to get this and here's what he does he takes the next couple of verses and he says look to get this you need to understand the difference between the representative headship of adam in your life Versus the representative headship of Jesus. Look at verses 45 and through 49. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. That last Adam, of course, is a reference to Jesus. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth of a man of dust. The second man was from heaven, is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so also those who are of dust 
as is the man of heaven, so also those who are of heaven. So in other words, those who are of Adam will bear the image of Adam, and those who are of Christ will bear the image of Christ. It's that simple. Our present earthly bodies are in Adam, and they will fully die and decay one day, but that is, and, and that is what it means that we are now born in Adam. There is no future for Adam. No matter how much our, our world tries to recreate the human experience, there is no future for the, for the Adamic race. There's not. The, the future of Adam, is, of wholeness and renewal, is only found in the gracious promises that are accomplished through God and His Son, Jesus Christ. The very promises that He alerted him to when He made the promise to Eve that He would send a serpent crusher of her own seed and He would destroy sin and death. Adam's only hope and the only hope you and I bring to the world in any shape or form is as we weigh ourselves as pilgrims now is that we don't point back to Adam's hope in Adam. We point, back, we point to hope in Christ. He's our new representative head. Our future body is found in Christ, not Adam, in him and in him alone. Will we be fully raised? Again, our future bodies are not just, are just as real. I'm sorry, they are just as real bodies, but they're not just bodies any longer. They're advanced bodies with the fullness of the Spirit within them, freed from the bondage of sin, freed from the bondage of decay, freed from the bondage of destruction. And so Paul then reminds us that the natural man, he proceeds from the spirit. I mean, I'm sorry, the spiritual man proceeds from the natural man. The natural must proceed. Like, we don't, you, you go through the natural before you can get to the spiritual. That's what he's getting at here. But the big point then that he wants to really land the plane with before we move into that third point is this. We will either bear the image of Adam in our life or we will bear the image of Christ. That's the only two choices we have. And as Christians here, here confess Christ and, and come and worship the, the one Savior, one Lord, uh, Savior, Jesus Christ, we must always put that before ourselves. Is our life now in being resurrected in Christ or, or, and looking for the resurrection, the full resurrection in Christ, living now with indwelt spirits now, as, even as we anticipate the fullness of that in the future, are we bearing the image of Adam or are we bearing the image of Christ? If we are in Christ... The image of Adam is dying. That's what happens. Our brother said this in Sunday school. We're dying to live now, not living to die. In Adam, we're living to die. But in Christ, we're dying to live. It's 100% true. Right? Adam is dying away in us, in the image of Christ, even though sometimes painfully so is being built up in us and growing in us and progressively being revealed to us as we're waiting upon Jesus to return. And this then, of course, leads us to that third response. Get the mystery of the change that happens in the resurrection. You will be fully changed. And that's where he wants to spend more time here in verses 50 through 56. I won't read all of it. Well, no, I will read all of it. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So that's what he's saying. He's making this difference. If you're in Adam, you can't inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised and perished, when we shall be changed. That's what he's getting at here. In Christ, we are changed. We can't have, find that change in Adam. We, flesh, Adam, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. For this, 53... 
Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on imper the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when, we, and when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall, come the pay, the pa I'm sorry, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? We will be changed. This is a word about our eschatological hope our hope of the future. Your gospel hope doesn't just involve right now. It's a now into the future. It's a hopeful anticipation. It's centering you on regularizing that you're not now. This is not your, this is not your forever home. It's about that one day those who are in Christ will receive a, 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 a more beautiful, more um, excellent home. See, our hope is not in us changing ourselves. A lot of that notion out there today, unfortunately, in Christian faith. We can never remodel the old man enough to make us suitable for glory. You can't do it. That promise of change is wrought fully in Christ and is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in us now and progressively so until the day comes when Jesus returns. But it will be consummate Finally, when Christ brings, and it says right here in the scripture, when, the, when, when Christ brings an end to sin and death upon his return. When he returns, sin and death are destroyed. And the new heavens and new earth are inaugurated and, and put in place. And those who are in Christ will be resurrected. And they will live forever and ever and ever with their King Jesus. And that full change, the one that you and I are still longing for, are still waiting for, and still frustrated that we don't see more of in our life sometimes, that's what it says here. In a moment, verse 52, in the twinkling of an eye, at the trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. Hallelujah. So all the frustration you and I feel right now, we live in a, an age where we still, deal, we still deal with the unfortunate realities of, of remaining sin. Sin does not rule. Death does not rule no longer because of Christ. But it's the remaining of us in this age is still here. But we wait with such wonder at the day coming when we will be resurrected fully and fully changed into that very thing we said we talked about earlier. Something completely new. Something completely different than you and I have always experienced in these old, worn-out bodies. Mind, spirit, body. However that is to take place. We don't know all the details there, and Paul doesn't necessarily call us to explore all of those details. And so Paul then asks, well, how did, you know, Paul then answers a question that maybe they are asking, maybe they, he just assumes they're going to ask. How does this change Transpire. I love what it says there in verses 52 through 53. The perishable and the immortal will be clothed with the imperishable, with imperishable and the immortality. That's the idea. We are being, we're being clothed with a new wardrobe. The perishable will be clothed with imper and the imperishable. And the, and the mortal will be clothed with immortality. We're given a new wardrobe. Romans 8, 11. We said this in Sunday school this morning. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life for your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I love the present and future tense of that verb, of that verse. He who raised Christ, so that's a reality in history, from the death will also give you life, that give 
is a present and ongoing indicative of, of, of future consequences, give you life to give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells presently in you. There's a future and present and future reality that we get to behold here. And you know what? It's hard to make all the sense of that, but it's there. In one sense, the Spirit dwells in us presently, and yet in a whole other sense, we have not even begun to experience the full measure of the power of the Spirit in our life. And that is something glorious to ponder, brothers and sisters. But then he goes on, we're presently joined in this creation, and we still groan at the reality of it. That's what we see there later on in Romans 8. By the way, Romans 8, I've said this before, is one of my favorite passages to study. We're going to do a series on it later this year. But just for your own edification, verse 19 through 25. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, Adam, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So even now, those of us who are Christians who have the first fruits of the Spirit are still groaning like the rest of creation in the reality of where we live. What a wonderful thing. We're no different. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of son as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen, I'm sorry, the hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees. But if we hope in what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Wow. Wonderful. Wonderful. See, death, as we see in verse 54 and following, it really does die. It really does lose we might look around us today and we think death's winning death does not win death loses and it loses in a spectacular way no 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 we get a victory and though we you know you might say and the reason he puts this whole sting in there is because we know what the reality of feeling like you feel the sting of death every day don't you so in what way is Paul saying, where is your sting? He's just, he's basically goading death. Oh, I know, I get it. My body is mortal and I get, I'm feeling the pains of it. I feel the pains of my own heart. I feel the pains of my own temptations. But even then, the sting is temporary. The sting is temporary. God wins. Death loses. And then he leads us then to wrap up all of his thoughts about this glorious gospel that we've been considering in these last three weeks under this wonderful exhortation in verse 58 to hang on to that resurrected hope. Therefore, he says, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, the question was posed at the end of Sunday school. What do we do now in the already but not yet? And I think he answers that question. So Lance, thank you for teeing that up for me this morning, bud. Because exactly, because we're going to answer that question this morning. What do we do in the time in between now and the time that Jesus returns? Well, Paul answers it 
steadfast, immovable, abounding always in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. What a wonderful way to answer the question. We stand firm. We are immovable. Again, it's almost like Paul was reflecting on Romans 8 while writing 1 Corinthians 15 to me. Right? Verse 31. And I can't help but preach when I read this, so just bear with me. I mean, because it's just, it's just like, it's like a sermon, like he's landing it, right? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who, de- who, I'm sorry, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, um, I'm sorry, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You and I are God's elect if we're holding on to Christ. Who can bring a charge against us? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It's Christ who is, who is the one who has died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of, of God and who indeed is interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul said. No. In all of these things, what are the things? Tribulation, distress, persecutions, famines, nakedness. No, in all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things, nor, pr- nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. So we give ourselves to the work. We don't grow weary in the work. We proclaim the truth of the gospel everywhere we can to anyone who's willing to hear it. We don't worry about the cost of that work. God will bear the cost for us and he will provide for us as he wills until he returns. And that might look differently for every person and the cost might be looked a little differently for each one of us here depending on where he leads us. So we must be ready for that. But our labor, no matter what it is and no matter what the cost is, is not in vain. And I just want you to know that I'm super encouraged by the fact that I see the witness of that in this very church. And I must want to apply it very narrowly, but it's something I cannot not make notice of. And I told you before when we did this series back in January, we weren't going to make everything about money. But I just want you to to take courage in what God is doing here just since the end of November, I mean end of January. Like I literally, me and Deborah talk about this. We're like, what is happening here? It's pretty freaking awesome. Sorry, I probably shouldn't have said it that way, but it's awesome. Sorry, my, 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 my enthusiasm is getting the best of me. We haven't closed the books yet on February. But as of last Sunday, you have given $33,000 or ish and change towards our, just our normal operating budget. Our operating budget is around $24,000 a month or so. Not only that, you gave $4,550 to Gabe and Emma, which was more than half of what they needed to raise to make up the gap. And not only that, many of you have already given some money and have been giving money to help us get all the things ready for the house across the street. I don't know what all those numbers entail. To be honest with you, you don't want me messing with numbers. It's okay. 
but I, it's going to be somewhere north of $40,000 in one month. Your generosity, huh? And look, I know that our work is more than giving, I just want, but I just want to note that and say, church, that's the kind of work that never gets vain. That's the work that we need to continue in. That's the work, that's at least one aspect of it. But if more than that, over the last two or three years, I've seen you come alongside struggling members and care for them in very difficult times. You've done so also by helping with financial, bearing, bearing the financial burden of counseling for members in our church. That probably, I don't know what the number is on this, but I'm just going to take a wild guess over the last three years, about 20K, probably in counseling sir, help for people. You long, you long to walk along suffering members in so many ways, and it's beautiful. You've supported efforts in local schools, backpack ministries, food boxes, Christmas stuff, Thanksgiving stuff. And we're giving more and more to our missionary partners in different places and organizations. So stand firm. Don't grow weary in that. Remain immovable in that. Because your work and my work is not done and it's not done in vain. That's where we stand today. That's where our hope is. Not in what we've done, what we're doing for the Lord, but in what the Lord has done for us and what he is one day going to unfold in such glorious splendor that the rest of the world will not be able to deny the power of our Lord any longer. They can do everything they can now to ignore it, but they will not, one day when King Jesus comes, they will not be able to ignore the power and wonder of his resurrection work. It's going to be beautiful. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning and we prepare for the Lord's table, we're kind of putting a, 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 a period, an exclamation point on this talk of the gospel of the last three weeks. God, just make our hearts just so glad in it. And as we come to the table here, make our hearts so glad in this opportunity to share in this as your, as your people this morning. Make your people glad in the gospel this morning, Jesus. So that we will be steadfast, we will be immovable, and we will recognize that our work is not in vain. Thank you, Jesus, for that. You are glorious, and you are worth every penny. You are worth every sacrifice. You are worth for every minute. You are worth for every tireless uh, conversation with, with, with members and care for one another. You are worth it. You are worth whatever cost it takes to take the gospel to the nations and to our neighbors. Jesus, may it be so. And help your people. Just like you are calling the Corinthians, help your people even now here at Grace Church and others like us, God, to be immovable in our work, steadfast in it. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.